if you will, open up your Bibles to the book of John, the end of chapter 2. We'll be working through just three verses today. Louis Pasteur was one of the giants of science in the past 200 years. You know him probably from pasteurization, which is named after him, and uh, he helped to make cheese and milk safer, to which we can all give a hearty amen, because those are very good things. He saved the lives of millions of people, though, because he was not just the father in terms of, of biological sciences, in terms of pasteurization, but also in terms of vaccinations. He was one of the modern pioneers of germ theory, which meant that he actually believed that there were little organisms that made us sick that we now know as being true. And it was his interest in that and his desire to prove that that led him to vaccinations. He was working with chickens. Specifically, he was working with cholera in chickens. And as was the want for people in the 19th century, if you wanted to work with cholera, you needed cultures. And so he went to his good friend, who happened to have a bunch of cholera cultures, which we don't do anymore. Uh, if I needed cultures of something, I don't think I would just go to a friend. But nevertheless, this is the, the world that Louis Pasteur worked in. So he went to his friend, he got these cultures. It just so happened that one of the cultures was, was spoiled. And so as he's infecting chickens to watch what happens to them and all the other chickens are dying, he finds that all of the chickens that were infected with this one group were, were not dying. And he thought, well, this culture must be spoiled. But like Colonel Sanders after him, he hated chickens and wanted them all to die. And so the ones that lived, he took a good culture and he infected them with the good culture. And lo and behold, those chickens didn't die. He probably ended up eating them anyways, but they didn't die. And so... He said, well, there must be something going on here. Eventually, he came up with the idea that this sort of deadened form of the virus that he gave to them provided them with some sort of resistance to the actual live form of the virus, and vaccinations were born from this. We are not pastors, we are pastors, but we do the same thing. We vaccinate people, we inoculate people against wrong, bad, evil things. We are to protect our flock against these things, whether they be the worldly thinking that occupies the secular world. And, and we are to, to move people away from that, to, to make sure that they understand what they're hearing and reading and seeing. That we are to inoculate them from things that seem like the gospel, but are not really truly the gospel from the schemes of the devil. There are many good things that we are to vaccinate our people from. But unfortunately, pastors oftentimes inoculate their people in bad ways, and they vaccinate them in bad ways. Many pastors preach a deadened form of the gospel, and then in preaching a deadened form of the gospel, they are hardening people's hearts, and they're making it harder and harder to reach them when the true, actual gospel comes to them. Many of these are not performing malpractice intentionally. They do not mean to do this, but they do it nonetheless. I was reminded of that this, this week, and this is not a southern thing. Don't think that because we're in the north, we are separated from this, but in our family's time in Louisville and then in, in Knoxville this week, I was reminded in both of those places of how these things creep up as people preach a gospel where a decision is one time made and then forever that decision is imprinted upon you and no matter how you live, no matter what you do, as long as you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you are saved from everything from then on, no matter how you live your life. I've met too many people who have talked about their decision 
when they were five, or their decision when they were six, or their decision when they were 13, while living in the utmost rebellion and trying to tell them the truth of the gospel becomes harder and harder and harder. This is based off of a good passage, Romans 10.9, something that we would all affirm, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. We, we think that's true and we are never going to say that that's not true. We deserve a hearty amen for anyone who would preach that message and we would preach that message gladly to people day in and day out from this pulpit. We could gladly do that. The problem is when that gets misapplied or Worse, that is taken as the only passage that talks about how salvation is wrought. We heard from Denise in her testimony, this, not this past week, but the week before that, and even two weeks ago in my sermon, I mentioned Matthew 7.21, which is an incredibly scary portion of Scripture, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who confesses me as Lord, is what he's saying. You've heard Paul say, that all you need to do is open your mouth and confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus here says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's a tension there. There's a tension between the simple confession of a believing Christian and certainly in a Protestant church that affirms with all of their heart that we are saved by faith alone, in grace alone. There is a great tension between that and Jesus saying, it is not just saying, Lord, Lord, but doing the will of my Father in heaven. John knows of this tension. John knows of the tension between a simple faith and a true faith. Listen to how John talks back in chapter 1 in verses 12 and 13 of the book of John. In talking about this light coming into this world, this light that would be the Son of God, this light which would be Jesus himself, John says this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believed in his name are those who received Jesus. Those who received Jesus were born not by their own desires, not by the will of the flesh, not by flesh and blood, but they were born by the will of God. So God enacted in them faith, They trusted in Jesus. They trusted in this one who was to come. And because of that, they they had the right to become children of God. They believed in his name. Now listen how John uses that exact same phrase. Not exact. Really close to that exact same phrase in verses 23 through 25 of the second chapter of the book of John. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of our God. Both times, in John 1, 12 through 13, we're told, you believe in his name, you have the right to be a child of God, you have been born of God. When you believe in his name, when you receive him, this is a work that God does in you, you do it as well. You receive him, you believe in his name, boom, saved. Now, John doesn't use the word saved, but in our vernacular way we talk, that means salvation. He uses the, almost the exact same phrase, in English it is the exact same phrase, here, and he says, well, well okay, so they believed in his name, but Jesus didn't, didn't buy into it. In one case, 
belief in his name is sufficient for salvation in another, it doesn't seem to be. So the question is, what does true belief actually look like? So let's break that down into two separate things first. How we believe. Let's talk about how we believe and what we believe and how we come to believe it. There are two ways to think about how we believe, and we've already sort of talked about both, but nevertheless, there's God's view of how we come to believe. And from the vantage point of God, our belief is based on nothing more than God giving us belief. You were born, as John would say, not by the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul will put it this way, that faith is a gift of God given to you so that no one may boast before him in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And so because of that, this this faith that we have is something that God gives to us. But while God works that out in our lives, oftentimes the faith that we have is not based on some sort of revelation that just comes to us, but it's based on how God works through a whole bunch of things that are happening in our lives. And oftentimes it's through the very things that we would have them seeing here. They're through signs. He says that while he's at this feast in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, Jesus is apparently performing miracles. In the book of John, the word signs means nothing more than miracles. It has bigger implications than just the miracles themselves, but nevertheless, Jesus is performing miracles, and they're watching Jesus perform miracles, and they say, that is the Messiah. We believe in his name. I don't think that we are too terribly much different. We don't believe because God simply opens our heart, but God oftentimes works through what are fairly normal, everyday things to open up our hearts. So we believe because we've seen the signs. Now, it's not enough to see a miracle. Some people claim that they won't believe unless they see, and they can act like Thomas and touch and feel Jesus as he's been resurrected himself, unless we understand that this can happen as though they're looking for some sort of scientific proof, which is ridiculous, because if it was scientific proof, it wouldn't have been a miracle, and then it wouldn't have been a resurrection. If it was a resurrection, it doesn't work, right? So you you can't just have proof like that. But the other major part of that is, even if you got that proof, the Bible says that's not enough. It's not enough to see miracles, If you are banking your faith on actually seeing a miracle, your faith will never manifest itself. One of the great parables on this is from Luke 16. Jesus is telling this parable about a rich man who who lavishly lives his life every day, these huge gargantuan feasts every day, and there's Lazarus, who is this poor man who is wretched and dying on his doorstep, who's begging him for food that he can split with the dogs. They both die. Lazarus is taken up with Abraham in heaven, and the rich man goes to torment in hell. And the rich man looks over to Abraham, and he says to him in Luke 16, 27, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... They will repent. He said to him, Well, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Jesus says, Listen, clearly, by the way, Jesus is talking about himself there. If the Pharisees are unwilling to listen to Moses and the prophets, him coming up from the dead is not going to convince them. Friends, seeing a miracle is not going to convince you to believe. In Acts chapter 5, we have a really good description of how this works out in their lives. 
John and Peter have been walking around performing miracles in the name of Jesus, the same name in Jesus that they have been proclaiming has been resurrected from the dead, that they are doing these works not of their own accord, but of Jesus' accord. The same Jesus that the disciples have claimed has been resurrected, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees know where he's buried, and they know he ain't there. They know that they've been claiming this, and they know that God is working through them. Gamaliel, the head and chief priest, stands up and is warning them about taking further action against these people. And he mentions the fact that other people, Thutis and Judas, have risen up recently, and, and they've had large followings. And he says, but they always die down. When these things are fake, they always die down. And so he says this in Acts 5, 38 through 40. In the present case, I tell you, this is Gamaliel, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They took his advice, but they didn't hear what he was saying. And Gamaliel didn't understand it either. They've got every sign in front of them. They've got active people saying and being beaten for preaching the name of Jesus Christ, telling them not to, and them looking at them and saying, well, listen, we've heard this from God. If you think it's better for us to follow you than God, well, that's your business, but we're going to follow God. All of the signs are there for them. All of the descriptions are there for them. All of the miracles are there for them. They don't believe. Yet, all the same, God gives us signs. Abraham, perhaps, is the one exception to this in all the Bible. Abraham is told, go, get up, leave, and go to Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, he hears a voice, certainly. That call comes to him somehow. But nevertheless, there are no accompanying signs, and Abraham gets up and goes. But to the rest of us, there have been signs. God continually shows us through the word, through our own lives, how he is gracious to us in all things, the kind of character that he has. When he shows up to pull his people out of Egypt, he comes to them and doesn't just lead them away, but he keeps them there so that he can show his power and his might over Egypt. He takes them to the Red Sea so that he might part it for them. He protects them in the wilderness. For 40 years, they wander around the desert, but their sandals don't wear out. Their garments don't wear thin. Their bellies don't go empty. Their throats don't go parched. He keeps them alive, protects them, and is with them for 40 years. Then entering into the promised land, he drives out the other nations through miracles. He is with them. And all of these things, he then memorializes either in feasts that they are to continually do or he memorializes in his own words so that they can always look back and say, this is the same God who performed these miracles. We should trust in him always. We believe the signs. We have the signs. And certainly, certainly these things can be misunderstood and these things can be misapplied. The Jews readily did this. They thought that because they were the chosen people, they were the literal sons of Abraham. They came through his offspring, Isaac and Jacob. They thought that they would be immune to anything bad happening to him. Go and read in the book of Jeremiah how they proclaimed that nothing bad would come to us. The Babylonians will not take us away because we are God's sons. We are Abraham's sons. John the Baptist says the same thing to them in Matthew. Don't think that because you are the sons of Abraham, that God is due to save you. God can raise up children from stones for Abraham. So they can be misunderstood and they can be misapplied, but nevertheless, God gives us signs. And the greatest sign of all of this is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. As we read this morning in Romans chapter 4, 
It is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that justifies us, that clears us from all wrongdoing. And more than that, it justifies every single utterance, every single thing that Jesus Christ said is justified because Jesus has his stamp of approval placed upon him by God the Father. Jesus said that he can take away the sins of the people. God has validated that by raising him from the dead. He said that he was the Son of God, uniquely over everyone else. He was the unique Son of God and that he had a unique relationship with the Father. God stamps his approval on that by raising him from the dead. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. God validates that by raising him from the dead. He said that his life was a ransom for many. God validates that by raising him from the dead. He's the only way to the Father. Raised him from the dead. You can trust Jesus. You can trust what he says. You can trust what he did. You can trust him in all ways because God has raised him from the dead. Now let's be honest. All of that is incredibly hard to believe. I don't, I don't know that many people give enough credence to the difficulty of what Christians claim has happened. We, we are still, you know, say we're moving to a post-Christian culture, but we still, many of us have been raised in this stuff. It's just part of the air we breathe, but realize how fantastic what we are proclaiming is. God spoke, we think, the universe into existence with a word. That universe is massive. It's so massive that the numbers that we use to, to describe it don't make any sense to our pea-sized brains. We, we can calculate them out, but we have no way to put them into some sort of understandable context for us. And, and our little lives happen in a corner of that universe. And in a corner of that corner, there is a little galaxy. And in the bit of that little galaxy, there is this tiny little solar system. And in the far corner of that solar system, there's this little blue dot. And in one little place, in that little blue dot, there is Bay City, Michigan. And you are very, very, very small little dots. In that dot, in that dot, in that corner, in that corner, in this universe that God whispered into existence. And we think that the same God who had all of that power, all of that might, all that foresight, came and died for you so that you could be with him. That is phenomenal. That is an audacious claim. Yet, we believe it. It's... It is hard to believe, but I don't know of any other way to make sense of what the Bible says has happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. And once that is understood, once that sign is placed before us, I, I don't know what else we can do but proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ has come and has died and has been raised from the dead. The disciples, by the way, the same Peter and John who were beaten, thrown in prison, that was not an isolated incident. This is what all the apostles had happened to them. The people who were most ready to say that Jesus has been risen from the dead and we have seen him risen from the dead got no worldly gain from that. They didn't achieve fame. The fame that they now have is fame centuries after they had already been persecuted and died. They didn't know that they were getting famous by this. They got no worldly goods from it. What they got was a sword. What they got was martyrdom. What they got was hardship and poverty. There's no reason for them to lie. 
There's no reason for them to believe in this unless it actually happened. The church has banked itself not just on the fact that Jesus got up, but on the fact that the apostles have seen it, on the fact that that has made an impact on the church for 2,000 years. And even the people who sit around you today will give credence to the fact that God has worked through them because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We believe, friends, because there are signs all over the place. There are signs sitting next to you of God's grace and his goodness. There are signs written down in scripture of his grace and his goodness. There are signs written in the books of history of his grace and his goodness. You should trust in Jesus Christ, that he has died for your sins, that he has been resurrected to justify you from those sins, that you might be clean before God forever and ever and ever because he is good to his word. We believe in those signs. But that belief is clearly not alone. While all of that is true and all of that is necessary, it also matters how Jesus believes. So that's the second thing we're going to talk about today, how Jesus believes. Every major translation of scripture treats these two words as different. Many believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Those words, though, are the same word. We just can't use them the same way in English. So we could say something like, they believed in him, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Or, they entrusted themselves to Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. And trust and belief kind of go back and forth on one another. Trust is probably a better word to use in English than belief and faith. Belief and faith have somehow become something that's just mental, but trust, trust is an action. You can believe that grass is green, and that's an intelligible statement, and it makes sense. But to say something like, I trust the grass is green, doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't know why you'd have to trust that grass is green. Maybe if you were a painter, then you would have to trust that grass is green. But otherwise, there's no reason. Trust, trust implies there's an action there. Like you've done trust falls as team working activities and youth building activities, right? Those awesome America's Funniest Home video. When, when they've got the two kids and they're trying to say, okay, your sister's going to catch you, but she falls the wrong way and she falls on her face. You know? Okay. So don't do that. But anyways, the trust, trust fall, when you trust, right, you expect that there's an action there. It's not just mental. You actually have to entrust yourself to something. Jesus didn't trust in the faith of these people. There was something, something that was deficient in their faith. Something that, that he knew when he looked in their hearts, he said, something is amiss here. And John just drops this on us, right? He, he doesn't tell us what these signs are. He, he doesn't tell us what Jesus has been doing. And he doesn't tell us what their deficiency in them is. But he does say very clearly, Jesus doesn't entrust them himself to them. So while John has wet our appetite for an answer to these things, he doesn't answer immediately and straightforwardly, but he does answer for us that Jesus does indeed entrust himself to you if you truly believe. Jesus, all the way through the book of John, talks about how if you believe in me, there'd be a spring of water. If you had asked me, he says to the Samaritan woman, there had been a spring of water welling up in you for eternal life. He talks about giving light to the world. He talks about being the bread of the world. But perhaps the best places to see how Jesus entrusts himself to his disciples is on the night that he is about to be betrayed, when for four or five chapters, John takes us into a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. 
And he shows us how Jesus entrusts himself to his disciples. Beginning in John 13, where we would expect the Lord's Supper to take place, instead we have a foot washing. Feet were nasty. They're nasty now, they were nasty back then. And they were nastier back then. And so the fact that Jesus would get on his hands and knees and do the job of a servant meant something. And he says, listen, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet because I have already made you clean. Jesus serves us by cleansing us. That's how he entrusts himself to you. Friend, do you, do you honestly believe that you are cleansed by Jesus before God this morning? Is this something that Christ has done for you? Do you feel confident that you can stand before a holy and righteous judge who knows everything that you have ever said, everything that you have ever thought, and you are clean? Chapter 14 Jesus says that he abides with us. He lives with us. He will make his home in us. And in doing so, you will keep his commandments. You know that he abides with you because you keep his commandments, he says. Which is, by the way, exactly what Paul means when he says, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you live against his commandments, your confession is worthless. It's not just confession. It's something that you actively have to do. And so Jesus says, I will abide with you, but you will keep my commandments. Do you do this? Especially in John 14, is the commandment to love one another. How do you show that you love other Christians? At Crossway, do people know that you love them? Do people know that you care about them? I don't mean does every single person in this church, even though we are not a large church, does every single person in this church know that you love them? Well, that's, that's practically impossible. But do people generally know that you are kind and that you love them because you are a brother or a sister in Christ? Is that true? Do you keep the commandments of Christ and therefore have Christ abide with you? In John 15, Jesus talks about being the vine. Therefore, he nourishes us. He gives us all the nutrients and moisture that we need so that we can make fruit in our lives. As Paul says, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Are these things growing in you? It doesn't mean that you have fully ripened fruit in every single one of those, but it does mean that fruit is there and it's maturing and it's ripening in your life. Do you have that? That is a clear and evident sign that Christ is entrusting himself to you, that he has connected you to himself and he is nourishing you to make that fruit. In John 16, Jesus provides the Holy Spirit to us. We, we sing that song, Christ will hold me fast. And we sing before that, Christ the sure and steady anchor. You know how anchors work? Anchors work not because you drop them into the ocean, but because you drop them into the ocean and there's a mighty big chain connected there. The Holy Spirit is what keeps us tethered to Christ. So what does he tell us? That the Holy Spirit will remind the apostles of everything that Jesus said so that they can write it down so that we can come and we can have the mind of Christ because we have the word of Christ, because the Holy Spirit has worked that way. And then when we go wayward, the Holy Spirit is there to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Christ gives us his precious Holy Spirit to tether us to him. He entrusts us with that. In John 17, he protects us. He keeps us from the harm that Satan desires to do to us. He maintains our faith. While our faith might wane and wax, we must be sure that our faith survives intact. 
And that, that faith is not simply, and that protection is not simply so that Satan cannot harm us, but specifically because he wants to harm us when we go forward and do the mission that Christ has sent us to do. Jesus says, just as you have sent me into the world, so I'm sending them, and I'm praying for them. Father, keep them safe. In all of this, Jesus cleanses us, he abides in us, he nourishes us, he tethers us, he protects us. That is entrusting himself to you. Do you have these things in your life? I don't know precisely what makes true faith true faith and what makes these, these fake false impressions that you were saved different. I'm guessing that there's a good deal of trust. But what I do know is that all of these things are evident in some way, shape, or form in the lives of people who actually have Christ as truly belief in, their, in his name. Those who truly and honestly believe that Jesus Christ has come and died for their sins and has been resurrected on the third day, who truly and faithfully confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God has raised him from the dead. God is working through them and God is entrusting in Jesus to them all of these things. So that these things are present in your life. Maybe not in the full, but certainly in truth. Friend, you can't simply look at your own heart and decide whether or not you are saved. You can't say, do you believe? And say, okay, well, let me see. I really think I believe. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friend, asking yourself that question is setting yourself up to believe that you believe because your heart wants you to believe. Your heart wants to clear you. The better question is not, do you believe that you believe, but does Jesus believe that you believe? And if he does, you will find that he has entrusted himself to you. You will find that he is working in your life. You will find that he is pulling you toward himself. You will find that he is entrusting you with the Spirit. You will find that there is fruit and growth in your life. You will find that you do have a love for the saints. You will find that Jesus Christ is holding you fast and everywhere. When you want to doubt, when you want to leave, you feel the tug of that anchor that will not let you go. You can fool yourself, but you cannot fool Christ. Listen to what he says here. How horribly terrifying this ought to be. He did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. He says, when we confess, we are not confessing so that Jesus up in heaven says, what, what? Oh, good, good. I finally know. I was on the fence there for a while, but finally he confessed. Jesus knows what's in your heart before it comes out of your mouth. Your confession is not for you, and it is not for Jesus. It is for man. But nevertheless, we are to confess, but Jesus doesn't need to hear it. He knows what is in your heart. Many times in the Gospels, we hear of Jesus knowing the thoughts of men. In Matthew 9, 4, 12, 25, 22, 18, Mark 2, 8, Luke 6, 8. In Matthew 9, 4, this beautiful passage of Jesus forgiving someone's sins. And they bring him a paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And he hears them mumbling in their hearts. And knowing their thoughts, Matthew says, knowing their thoughts, Jesus says, why do you grumble in your hearts? What is easier for me to say, get up and take your mat and walk or to say your sins are forgiven, but so that you will know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your mat and walk. So he does. 
or reading that in family devotions, my daughter, Lucy, said Jesus was reading their brains. <laughs> That's right. Time and time again, people mumble and grumble in front of Jesus. They think evil thoughts in their hearts, and Jesus answers precisely those evil thoughts. How terrifying must that have been to be sitting there thinking things and then having that man look you in the eye and answer them. In the Gospel of John, we have implications. We have probably reading it a little bit much, but nevertheless, the idea that people didn't just know that Jesus could do this, but they knew that he was doing it. Nathaniel's fantastic confession at the end of chapter 1 seems to imply that he knows that Jesus knows more than his words are letting on. The Samaritan woman, after Jesus says, you've answered truly, you don't just have a husband, you have five husbands, and the one that you're with is not now your husband. She goes back to the city and says what? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, that was not everything she ever did, but she knew by looking at him that he had the ability to do it. Every single one of us has thoughts that go through our head every single day that are evil and horrible, that you would be embarrassed to the max to have anyone know what is going through your head, even at this moment. How horrible it must be to stand in front of a man who can always do that. He always knows what you're thinking. He always knows what's going through your head. He doesn't need you to confess him. Friend, don't try to convince yourself that you believe. Convince Christ that you believe. Let him entrust himself to you. I had a good friend who was a somewhat faithful Christian in high school, we would think. Yeah, I was a teenager, so he had ups and downs, but he, he seemed to have fruit in his life. He went away to college, and he became agnostic, sash, atheistic, whatever the case might be. And I happened to have a conversation with him, and he said something that I thought was really particular and strange. He asked me not to tell him something. He knew that I was pretty firmly in the Christian camp, and he, he said, listen, I don't want you to tell me this. And what he said was, was surprising, because he didn't say, I don't want you to tell me I'm going to hell. He didn't say, I don't want you to tell me the gospel. He didn't say, I don't want you to tell me that, that you're right and I'm wrong. What he said was, I don't want you to tell me that I didn't truly believe, because I did truly believe. I believed with my heart. I just don't believe anymore. I have no doubt that he believed. He believed in something, and he believed it with his heart. And whatever that thing was, I have no doubt that he believed, but I have no doubt as well that Jesus didn't believe him because he fell away. He turned his back on Christ and he turned his back on Christianity. He turned his back on the good news that Jesus Christ has died for his sins. Friends, if you would be saved today, and know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice that would free you from your sins, to give you a full and a new life of knowing God intimately and sharing an eternal life with him. Listen to what Jesus is pleading with you through the Spirit and the work of John and even through the Apostle Paul who writes this in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves. See whether you are in the faith Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed 
you fail to meet the test. There is true faith and there is false faith. Has Jesus Christ entrusted himself to you? Test yourselves so that you may know him and his salvation. If you don't know him, as we have already said, and we are going to say again, taste and see that the Lord is good. Entrust yourself to this Jesus because he has been resurrected from the grave. He has been brought up from the dead to prove to you once and for all that he is indeed good to his word, that he is good to fulfill the promises that he has laid down for you, that you might know him and his salvation. Let us pray. Father, we are thankful for the word that you have given to us. We are thankful that you have warned us against simple belief, a one-time declaration that you don't care about holiness of life, that you don't care about working in us to make us into your image, better image bearers of Jesus Christ and the glory that he has. Father, keep us from that. Not thinking for a second that we earn our salvation, knowing that it is a gift of you, that you have given us faith, you have given us the gift of repentance, you have given us grace. But in this gift, you have not just given us grace so that we might confess, you have given us grace so that we might be changed. Father, I pray that we might look at our lives and see the Spirit working as the wind blows through the trees and we hear their rustling. We pray, Father, that we will see the Spirit rustling our lives, that we might know the Lord better, that we might see him better, that we might be able to worship you better, that we might be able to say that we believe truly because we know of the work of the Spirit in our lives. We pray this for everyone in this room, that you would bring conviction upon us, you would hold us fast, you would give us faith and conviction, and that you would work in us to bring glory to Jesus Christ who is to be praised forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen.